Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is where you are at. This is Plot Twist, Please. I'm Shamaya. It sounds like papaya, except it's not. Welcome back. I'm so glad to see you on a spiritual level because I can't actually see you because we're social distancing. Woo! Today, I'm going to talk about something that has been on my heart lately, mental health as it pertains to Black women. Um, in my case, a cisgender, straight Black woman. I'm going to talk about that because um, that is my experience. Or as you may know, hope you know. You know, it's okay, but um, this month, the month of July, is Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. And it's really important to highlight the specific mental health struggles of BIPOC. If you don't know what that abbreviation stands for, it's Black and Indigenous people of color. There are very unique complications to getting healthcare first, but along with that comes therapy, medication, and things that would pertain to your mental health and your overall well-being. And in a lot of situations, whether you live or die. So if you're one of those people who's saying Black Lives Matter, this is part of that. Mental health impacts every area of our lives. Our careers, the careers we are able to go into, our relationships, physical health, so important that we acknowledge access and things like therapy and medication and things like that. And along with that, there's also stigma within our communities, within our ethnic groups. I know within the Black community, if you go to therapy, there's this connotation that you're crazy or that you, you know, you've really gone off the deep end if you need to go to therapy. Like therapy is for crazy people, right? Or white people. And I've actually heard that throughout my lifetime. I've heard therapy is for fragile white people who've never had any problems. When black people should certainly go to therapy. The thing is that Racial trauma is literally absorbed by our bodies. We absorb the trauma of our parents, of our parents' parents, their parents. It's generational. So after Juneteenth, which is the official date that the last of the slaves in America, which were slaves in Texas, were notified that they were free. After they were freed from slavery, nobody asked them how they were. No one, no one asks them how they were doing. Because if you think about slavery and all of that trauma, you think about all that pain, you think about being separated from your family, maybe, maybe at this point you don't know where your family is because they were sold somewhere and you haven't contacted them and you haven't contacted them since because there was no way to. Maybe you've been abused after they were free. They kind of were like, okay, like I guess we just gotta figure it out. We gotta figure it out, fam. And that's the mentality that a lot of, of people in the black community that I see, that I've been surrounded with, um, have had of having to be strong and having to figure it out by yourself because you've always had to. And although that, where that comes from is valid, it's just not useful for us anymore. In any situation that encompasses trauma or traumatic events, you have this mentality, a certain mentality within that trauma, which is to survive. You're in survival mode. And that mentality is useful for that traumatic, traumatic period in order for you to get out of it. But it is not useful after the trauma has already happened. It's not useful to carry with you for the rest of your life. So 
that's kind of what we're referring to when we're talking about racial trauma, as well as um, the trauma that we go through on the daily, having to be faced with racism and implicit bias and friends who say that you're not really black because you don't talk black. Or I, yes, I've been told I wasn't really black because I sounded white. And people saying that you're pretty for a black girl, your hair is basically something to be put in a museum because it's so interesting to them and it's not like it's part of your body or part of who you are. Um, oh, and I do need to do another video on hair because whoo, black hair is a whole different, it's, it's a whole nother thing. There's so much trauma that is embedded in how we view our hair and how we tend to our hair, but there's also a lot of love. And I do want to acknowledge that too. It's not all trauma. You know, everything that black people experience is not trauma. Every single relationship we have is not rooted in trauma, um, especially every relationship with our bodies. So I am going to do a video on that, but getting back to the point. Yeah, trauma, it's when you see black people getting slaughtered on television and either fictional television or non-fictional television. And so that's why the next time that you see police brutality, trigger warnings are important because that stuff is traumatic. Either don't share it or make it so that if somebody doesn't want to see it, that, they, that they're not automatically bombarded with it. So right now I'm going to get a little personal. I'm just going to give a brief summary of my mental health journey and what I've experienced as a Black woman. First of all, I'm someone who would be classified as neurodivergent. Someone who is neurodivergent functions in a fundamentally different way than most people do. And that can be very isolating. First of all, just as a human and as a Black person, it can be even more so. Being neurodivergent, first of all, is kind of like everyone getting an email in your class that class the next day is canceled except you and so you show up to the classroom and you end up being by yourself because you're the only person who didn't get the memo well being a black neurodivergent person is kind of like having a lifetime of being in those rooms by yourself it's hard to connect with people it's hard to understand in my case it's hard to understand subtle social implications, social norms, um, those idiosyncrasies of communication. Um, it's hard. It's rough. It is rough. When you don't have the resources to either be aware of that or to live with that, it can be really, really scary. And you can feel very alone. I'm just, this is just like, to be, I gotta be honest, there was definitely a moment in my life where I, I was about 10 years old and I had decided that connecting with people was not in my future. I was convinced that there were some people who had relationships and had companionship and that that just wasn't in the cards for me. And I had forced myself to be okay with that for a really long time. And then I realized it wasn't that there was something fundamentally wrong with me. It was the fact that I was neurodivergent. And that's the thing, is when you when you are neurodivergent, you literally feel like something is wrong with you. Like there's like a screw that is loose and you don't know where it is and you don't have a screwdriver. So you're kind of just rolling around with a loose screw, trying to figure out like how to function like these other machines around you are functioning. After I got myself 
some solid relationships, I started feeling more confident and I started seeking people out, seeking out relationships, not being as afraid of them, not being as afraid of people because <laughs> people were scary. And I, I was like, oh, okay, so I can, I can live this, this life that I see in movies of people hanging out with people on the weekends and people, um, you know, having these long-term relationships. This can be a thing for me. And then I remember talking to a friend, um, an old friend on the phone, and I was saying, I was talking about how in high school, and he was saying that his experience kind of mirrored mine, where I always felt like I couldn't quite connect with people. Like there was just something different about me and I couldn't really put my finger on it, but there was just something that felt like it was missing. Just like the way that I saw the world and just the way that I moved in the world within different groups. I just felt there was something different and I couldn't put my finger on it. And that was when he was like, oh, um, you might be on the spectrum because I felt the exact same way. It turned out that I also am. And I was like, huh. And it's funny because I didn't know anything about autism. I didn't know anything about Asperger's or people who are on the spectrum, except for the, you know, the ignorant things that I'd heard and seen about people who fall into those categories. It was comforting to hear that someone else had had a similar experience and that you could name what that thing was. But I also was very afraid of that be, you know, once that's, once that's it, that that's the thing, it's reality. Like once you name it, it's real. And so I was a little bit afraid of that, but I also just had these really off notions about autism and about people who are on the spectrum that they couldn't live quote, normal lives. And the thing is that normal, normality is overrated anyway. And people just need to learn to do what they want, to just live the way that they want, what makes them, do what makes them happy. Because at the end of the day, none of the, none of the people who are judging you matter. Like, and I know you hear that a lot, but it's really hard for us to digest on a habitual level because it just feels, it feels very laissez-faire, and it does, it feels a little, just live your life, just do what you want, just do you, girl. Like, it feels like that. But it really hit home to me when I went to therapy and my therapist contended with me, like, yeah, like, bingo, <laughs> bingo. So that was a journey in of itself. It's funny because at a theoretical level, Yes, we understand that people who are neurodivergent are people. We understand that. But when it comes to actual interactions with them and communicating with them, we are just plain unempathetic about it or just ignore them as members of society. What is theory if it does nothing for us in practice? There's absolutely nothing broken about people who are neurodivergent. It's just that we are on a different wavelength than most people and we see the world differently. And that makes the world more interesting to have people who see it from different angles. Now, as it pertains to being a Black woman and being neurodivergent, it is a different bag. It is a different bag. Like um, what I said earlier, it's like being in multiple rooms by yourself throughout your lifetime. That's essentially what it feels like. 
not only do you not fit into the general scope of humanity on the daily and how people operate, parts of the Black community don't really know how to deal with you because it's just not as normalized in our culture. I mean, I don't know about everybody else, but just the community that I grew up with, you would see the crazy guy on the corner and you'd be like, leave him alone. He's crazy, he's a lost cause. And anyone who was crazy was a lost cause. It's part of seeing someone who's different than you and initially being fearful of them. And the thing is people who, especially black people who are neurodivergent or people who have mental health complications or mental illnesses, we are victims of this very racist, very structurally oppressive society. As it pertains to black women in terms of, you know, taking care of yourself on a habitual level, there's definitely stigma around that. And that's rooted in white supremacy and rooted in anti-blackness. Black women are stripped of certain characterizations that are rooted in femininity because of, guess what? Ding, 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 slavery. Did you guess it? Did you guess it? During the era of colonialism, white womanhood was the only kind of womanhood there was. This fragile, docile white woman was the image of femininity, which was an image that was not allotted to black women. So in turn, what ended up happening is there was this image created throughout time of black women that painted us as really strong and really tough and not needing protection or love or care. Not saying that for every woman that should be the image painted, but that was specifically linked to strategic oppression that impacts us still to this day. And it has to do with how black women today die on childbirth and how many black women don't receive proper medical care because they're perceived as being stronger. And I've experienced this directly, um, not the childbirth part, but the bias within the healthcare system. So my mom was a nurse and something that she would reiterate to us, to us children, even like at 10 years old, um, was that we need to learn how to speak up for ourselves in the doctor's office. So what she did, and I was, I was so mad because I was this shy child and I didn't like people. Like I said, people were scary. And she, she sat with me in the doctor's office and she really sprung this up on me, but mama had a way of doing that. So I was sitting in the doctor's office at like 10 years old and the doctor asked my mom, like, you know, basically of the rundown, what you do when you go in for physicals, basically the regular checkup questions. And my mom looked at me and she said, go ahead and tell him. I was like, ah, <laughs> don't make me speak for myself. Um, but I'm glad that she did that. And she, she did that from that point forward because she wanted to make a point that as specifically as a black woman, I had to learn to advocate for myself, even in the doctor's office, even amongst professionals. And the thing is too, she was probably more akin to that and to that dynamic because she was in the medical field. And another example of that was when another, we had a conversation um, when I was a bit older and she said, Maya, whenever you go to the doctor's office and they ask you about like, if you're experiencing any kind of pain, if you are experiencing pain in a specific area, you need to tell them that you're experiencing it two or three points higher than you actually are. So basically, if you're experiencing pain at a five, tell them you're feeling it at a seven.
And I didn't understand the implications of that then, but it makes so much sense now because literally black women are treated as if we don't feel significant, amount, significant amounts of pain. Even um, there were experiments done on us as black people, there are experiments done on this because people legitimately believe we didn't feel pain as much as white people. And so when you come from that and you come from a medical field rooted in that, and then you look at today and how it's in situations like that, I feel like I have to even exaggerate what I'm going through in order to be taken seriously, then that becomes really eye-opening and jarring. But now, along with the conversation of Black women dying in childbirth, a lot of that has to do with racial trauma, having an effect on our health. Our, our, our bodies are absorbing all of the stress from racial trauma, and it's impacting how we conceive, it's impacting the miscarriage rate among Black women. And, and I was watching a conversation um, with Brittany Cooper, who, as some of you may know, is an author, an activist, et cetera. And she was saying how it's so, it's so wild how when we were used within a slavery, a system of slavery, more black babies for our white masters that we could conceive then, fine. We could conceive, we could give birth, fine. But when it came to us actually wanting to do this within our own will and because of things that we wanted for our own lives, just because we wanted to, this is when it became difficult. We're seeing the repercussions from that time period in a time where we actually, some of us actually want to have children. Isn't that wild? <sighs> it's wild. Another thing within the conversation was that we don't, we don't as a society care about black girls. We don't. They are expendable to us. Any, anytime they're in trouble, we see it as them getting themselves in trouble. We see them as being the, the rebels and the troublemakers. If they are in a relationship with a predator, then they are the ones being fast. We love our Jezebel narratives. We love to do that to black girls. We can name it. We can claim it. We can name it. So R. Kelly, him abusing these girls, didn't stir anything up in us. It didn't make the police want to pursue this with fervor. And the thing is, one of those girls' mothers, I forgot who, but her mother literally called the police and was saying, my 13-year-old daughter is in there with R. Kelly. Go get her. And the police was saying how there wasn't much he could do, you know, like he can't, he can't embark on someone else's rights or some, something like that, some, something like that. But it's like, okay, if this man had had drugs in that house, I'm sure you would have busted up in there real quick and in a hurry. I'm sure. I am sure. So it's like, it's almost, it's, 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 it's really, there's so much overwhelming evidence that we truly do not care about black girls and black women as much as we do about white girls and white women. White women actually benefit from black women's oppression because it's a hierarchy, right? In this system, there's cis straight white men, cis straight white women, cis straight black men, and then there's cis straight black women. You see these power moves playing out in practice, in, in communities and in relationships. White women benefit from the oppression of black women. And that also goes back to, guess what? Ding, 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 slavery. When the slaves were being raped by the husbands of white women, 
we became a threat, even though this was completely against our will, because their husbands desired us, we became a threat because it disrupts their place in the system. Now, some women are very conscious of that. Like we've seen white women says that a black woman is being aggressive toward her when she's truly just using her speaking voice. Not only is it rooted in willful ignorance, it's rooted in genuine fear of black women. And that might be a little hard for some people to digest because they're like, but this is, this, they're just afraid. They're just, they don't know. They're just afraid because they see a black woman being angry. But where is that fear coming from? Because it's not always blatant. It's not always, I'm going to weaponize the system against you, black woman, because I can and because I want to keep power. No, sometimes it's not that blatant. It's sometimes it's not that much in your consciousness. Sometimes it's in your subconsciousness. Sometimes it's about a black woman reaching inside her bag and you thinking that she's reaching inside her bag for a gun. You know, and it's, it's similar to the instances with police officers. I do genuinely think that some of those police officers thought they were in actual danger. But does that mean that they were? And that's when it gets tricky because it's more of a psychological thing that we need to deconstruct within ourselves. But we still need to address it because as we've seen, implicit bias can literally be deadly. It can literally change someone's life or end it. So that's why it's especially important that we have these kinds of conversations. And I think that people are afraid of these kinds of conversations because they think that it's very easy to let it get skewed and it's easy to let, you know, feelings take over the situation and, you know, actual substance and the facts are lost within the conversation. But these are the conversations that actually make the difference. Because if we're just boiling it down to either you are a flaming racist or you're the perfect human, we're not gonna get anywhere. Now, I'm not a fan of the help. It is not my biopic of choice. But the thing that the help got right is that white women are violent. As a society, we see them painted in these angelic lights and, you know, we see them as, as emotionally vulnerable and polite and well-meaning and well-intentioned. And that's not always the case. Because they are viewed as these demure, angelic humans who need to be protected from Black people, which goes way back, their white male partners end up protecting their right to be violent. So many Black women have been harmed and have died for the sake of white people protecting their, their livelihoods and protecting their right to use this corrupt system to protect their way of life. That's old icy, if you ask me. It's just, a little, it's just a little crunchy for me. The last thing I want to refer to is Black women being the healers of the world. Because there's this there's this weird, stressful onus on us that is put on us to heal the world, to educate the world. And that's very specific to Black women. Because you look at the people who are at the forefront and who start these movements. A Black woman started the Me Too movement, y'all. Tarana Burke, her name is Tarana Burke. So Black women end up being the healers in our relationships with men. We end up being the healers in our workplaces slash educators about racism. We end up being the healers when it comes to movements. And we very seldom actually 
reap the fruit of that. We very seldom get recognition and appreciation for that. And what ends up happening, even in the Black community, what ends up happening is we end up doing all of the emotional labor and getting depleted in these relationships and in our workplaces because no one else wants to pick up the baton. Never mind that we still need to heal ourselves. Never mind that there are systems that are set up where it makes it difficult for us to heal ourselves. It's why I, when looking for a therapist, and whenever I have to look for a new therapist, I always look for a black woman. I always do because even then, even in that arena, there's implicit bias. And there, there are things that have to do with racial trauma that someone else might not necessarily be able to grasp as well. When we don't get the help that we need, our lives and the lives of our loved ones are threatened. And sometimes we don't ever get the help that we need and it's too late. So I know that was really heavy. <laughs> so I'm going to try to end this episode with something a little more lighthearted. Something that I've been doing lately is buying plants. And okay, so it's been, it's been okay. I think one of my little buddies is hanging on by a thread. It's an apple mint plant. It's been two days. It has been two days since I got my plant. Um, but it's okay because I have two. My sage plant is doing just fine. Stay well, stay connected, and give yourself a hug every once in a while. Yeah? Can you tell I'm a preschool teacher? Don't forget to follow me on my Instagram, Shamaya Moody. Don't forget to follow me on my other Instagram, Platris, please, and also follow the blog and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye. Sweaty, my name is Sweaty Freddy. We're going sweaty, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Just...